this book is really a study of character. What happens to an ordinary man who's serving in the nation's highest office, who's faced with a crisis that he never expected? What's his view of what's demanded in the way of public debate? What's his view of the Constitution? While U.S. presidents could hardly lay claim to anything resembling privacy, they do enjoy something of a privileged position when it comes to secrecy. Since the earliest days of the Republic, each chief executive has had to balance the competing interests of transparency, security, and political expediency in the control of information, and each has taken a different approach. Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and joining us today is Mary Graham, co-director of the Transparency Policy Project at the Kennedy School's Ash Center. She's the author of the recently released books, President's Secrets, The Use and Abuse of Hidden Power. Mary, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. So, uh, first of all, what was it that got you interested in this subject? Ah, you know, this was started as a short article for The Atlantic when President George W. Bush's policies of detention, interrogation, and surveillance were being revealed. And I wondered what, how far a president could go in changing Americans' rights or uh, changing Americans, doing actions that challenged Americans' values behind closed doors. And when I finished the article, I was still confused about it. So I started looking at earlier presidents, and this book is really the result of that inquiry. My children said it took me 9,000 years to Right, but I, I think that that's something of an exaggeration. Uh, it is a, an historical analysis. It starts, you know, right with the Constitutional Convention, um, goes right up to uh, at least the last president, Barack Obama. Um, was it essential to take a historical perspective on this to really understand it? I think so. Uh, the Constitutional Convention and George Washington really set us on a road toward a culture of open government that lasted for over 100 years. The Constitution was based on the idea of shared power and therefore shared information. And George Washington, to his great credit, uh, really was uh, every time Congress would demand information from him, and they demanded confidential correspondence. They wanted to know who the government's secret agents were. They wanted to know how much Washington was willing to pay what were then called the Barbary pirates who were seizing Americans' ships in the Mediterranean. So Congress was quite active in demanding information that Washington could have said was confidential. In each case, he gave them the information. Sometimes he, he really became the master of the middle ground. So sometimes he would say, uh, he he would ask Congress to keep it confidential. Other times, he would delete a few sections, like the an agent undercover agent's name or the amount of money that was involved in some negotiation. But he really solidified that uh, that culture of open government that lasted really until the fear of communism started us building an architecture of secrecy. When I think of Washington, the number of precedents he set that weren't necessarily based in law, you think of the, the dual-term uh, presidency. Uh, what was it about secrecy, about what he did, um, that was so 
easy for presidents to follow those those same uh, ideals. I mean, uh, you, you say it didn't really change till communism. The country certainly went through tremendous upheaval in the interim, civil war, uh, you know, great unrest. Why didn't it break then? I think, again, it's partly a matter of character. Um, the Abraham Lincoln during the Civil Wars is a president I spent a good deal of time reading about and trying to understand in terms of secrecy. But, you know, he was extraordinarily open in most of his actions during the war. He He's crit- often criticized for sus- suspending the writ of habeas corpus, which is the rule that a, a judge has to approve the detention of a, of a citizen. But he did that quite openly. And when Congress was not in session, he did it for the purpose of stopping Maryland officials from from blocking the way of Union troops who were trying to get to Washington to defend the, the city. But he did that openly. And uh, it was challenged, therefore, by the judge, by Judge Taney. And when Congress came back to town, they confirmed that 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 what Lincoln had done had been authentically okay, had been okay. He did, under, under his presidency, the Secret Service was formed, but at that time, it didn't have anything to do with protecting the president. The Secret Service only mission at that point was to prevent counterfeiting. Something like a third to a half of the nation's currency during the Civil War was counterfeit. And so that was, while it's called the Secret Service, it, it doesn't have to do with building um, a culture of, of, of general, general secrecy. That really didn't happen until the Woodrow Wilson administration. Was transparency always, I mean, going back to the very beginning, was transparency always seen as a fundamentally important piece of our democracy? Obviously, free speech, free expression, uh, you know, the press all, you know, very well established and protected by the Constitution. Um, But this idea that uh, the executive branch in particular um, should have to share the information that they're dealing with. Uh, was there precedent in other countries? Where, how did that develop? You know, there there was some precedent in in other countries for legislative openness, for the the debates in Parliament to be open. For most state legislatures in the very new nation here to to hold um, sessions that were recorded and and at least votes were made uh, made public. But our constitution really broke new ground and. Without being explicit about sharing information, really the only state and the only statement in the Constitution is that the president should inform uh, Congress of the state of the union from time to time. But the fact that the president couldn't do anything or could not do much by himself, he could not raise taxes, he couldn't spend money, he couldn't regulate business, he couldn't declare war. All of those were powers of Congress. And so as a result, he had to share information. He had to govern by persuasion. It was really the ingenious separation of powers which forced the government to be be open from the beginning. Now, uh, I 
certainly skipping a few steps along the way here, but uh, I recall when Barack Obama was president, um, he was routinely referred to, or at least his administration was referred to as an imperial presidency by uh, conservative groups. Can you speak to the difference between that, uh, the the precedent that Washington set uh, based very little in, in you know actual constitutional language um, and what the presidency is right now? Well, of course, it was a tiny government in the beginning. George Washington, I think the State Department started out with two clerks and you know, a couple of off officers. It was it was a small government, and it was not involved in the regulation of business the way the modern government, the huge enterprise of the modern government, is. Uh, government by executive order uh, doesn't work very well if there's controversy. So, one of the reasons we're having so much government by executive order is that Congress, in writing legislation often leaves the door open. They don't define terms or they they leave it to the executive to really decide the hard issues. And that may be politically helpful to Congress because they can pass a bill without facing all of the tough issues. But it, it probably leaves the president too much, too much room. And it, it's one of the things that's of concern is that often executive orders are issued behind closed doors. They're issued secretly. And so to have a an executive order, and, and, and often that's for legitimate national security purposes, but to, to have um, a government by executive order is not, is not a healthy or particularly transparent uh, government. We saw that in the early days of the Trump administration when he issued his immigration order. He did it exercising a particularly a dangerous kind of secrecy, which was not consulting with his advisors, not uh, uh, seeking legal advice from the government lawyers, not uh, talking with the agents who would have to carry it out about what was going to be uh, realistic. And that kind of policymaking by executive order without advance consultation and an opportunity for debate is a is a destructive kind of secrecy. In that case, it was destructive to the president. He's seen that the courts and the states sort of swing into action, um, but it was also destructive to thousands of innocent people who were caught in the midst of a confusing order. If we trace from Washington to uh, Trump. We see a pretty obvious line of increasing executive power accompanied by uh, more executive secrecy. Um, is that true if we shorten the timeline, if we say start at uh, Woodrow Wilson uh, in the 20th century? Um, was it true that just every succeeding president was a little bit more powerful and a little bit more secret? Or were there variations between them? Oh, certainly variations. This book is really a study of character. What happens to an ordinary man who's serving in the nation's highest office, who's faced with a crisis that he never expected? What's his view of what's demanded in the way of public debate? What's his view of the Constitution and what it requires? So it varies enormously with character. And and what I've tried to do is choose those moments when we really changed our minds about secrecy and try to understand the human dimensions of it, how a particular president 
responded based on his experience and his aims and his instincts and what the results were for the nation, where there was a straight line, a sort of somewhat straight line, was from President Wilson's uh, presidency forward. We don't call his presidency a Cold War, but it was really when the fear of communism began to cause uh, us to undertake practices that were secret, secret surveillance of radicals. Wilson was quite um, severe in approving the deportation of immigrants because they might be Bolsheviks or they might be radicals. It was Woodrow Wilson who gave J. Edgar Hoover his start in something called the Intelligence Bureau. And, And by the time Wilson left office, which was, of course, quite early in 1920, uh, J. Edgar Hoover had 60,000 files on radical um, individuals. And that just continued. It continued and sort of became an assumption. The, 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 the investigation of international telegrams and international phone calls started under Wilson. And while we didn't really, we don't call it a Cold War until Harry Truman's presidency, the foundation for it was laid by Woodrow Wilson. He, by the way, gets a tremendous amount of credit and should get a tremendous amount of credit for also being a very progressive president. He, he had uh, tr- tremendous um, uh, views of, of controlling um, child labor. He, he helped form the, the Federal Reserve. He, he did many, many things that were, were progressive, but none of these presidents is a simple character. Of course, he also famously was essentially disabled at the end of his presidency, uh, not exactly uh, marking in favor of his openness or transparency. Can you speak to that particular story? Well, I, I, I emphasize that in the book because it's a problem that in some ways is still with us. We still don't have an adequate way to remove from office a president who is mentally or physically incapacitated. But Wilson um, suffered a a severe stroke on October 2nd, 1919. He was was never a healthy man. He had had strokes earlier in in his life, and he was always had this will to go on, even though his health was never never good. But this stroke uh, paralyzed his left side, left him speaking and thinking without uh, clarity left his vision impaired, and he was really bedridden for a couple of months. And then, when he began to be more conscious of what was going on around him, he became irrational. So he launched diatribes against people who disagreed with him. He fired his secretary of state for holding cabinet meetings. He refused to let his aides negotiate to save the League of Nations, which Congress was debating. Um, he became paranoid and had trouble um, controlling his emotions. And that went on for the last 18 months of his presidency, causing terrible um, damage to the to the country. One of the things that happened was the zealots within his administration took control. So A. Mitchell Palmer, who was his attorney general, launched raids against uh, immigrants and so-called um, radicals. His Postmaster General Albert Burleson, who had taken it upon himself to try to resegregate the federal government, 
continued a mail opening uh, program that he uh, had initiated. And many of those practices just continued on then in the 1920s and the 1930s as the fear of communism became more acute. Cybersecurity is a big deal. And protecting against cybersecurity means doing things like encrypting your communications. Uh, But when you encrypt your communications, you make them impossible to access by anyone other than yourself. That's a feature, not a bug. Um, How do we uh, balance this idea of cybersecurity with the traditional notion of, you know, saving all public records, um, you know, making sure that the the administration is accountable and open as much as as possible? What happens when uh, a FOIA request gets an encrypted jumble of letters? Well, as 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 you're referring to encryption as a currently hot debate, you know we are, I I again think that this is the early days of the technology. I'm pretty sure that technology is going to solve this problem in the sense that the government will be able to get what it absolutely has to get, uh, and and people will be able to nonetheless encrypt uh, their private communications, which um, is is a is not only essential, it's inevitable, because if we don't allow it in this country, um, businesses in other countries are using encryption technology, and it certainly does not, is not a technology that knows, um, that knows national boundaries. But I think we're in the midst of a cyber, kind of a, a cyber arms race um, that either will continue and will be trying to stay a step ahead of the Hackers, whether they're doing it for prop, profit or for for criminal intent or for political purposes, or there'll be some kind of international agreement among responsible governments. I would hearken back to the chemical warfare agreement. It was not perfect. It's still not perfect, as we as we know from the experience in Syria. But it was an agreement. It was a technology that could have entered warfare. Uh, just as cyber attacks can enter warfare. Um, but there was a general consensus on the part of responsible nations not to use chemical weapons. And I can see something similar with cybersecurity, particularly as we get, uh, get further along the path of being able to knock out infrastructure with cyber attacks. So not only bringing, stealing things from the Defense Department, for example, but disabling an electrical grid, which means that hospitals wouldn't have electricity, or uh, taking down a transportation system. Those are, we've seen some early examples of that kind of use of cyber conflict. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think as that becomes more potentially destructive, we would hope that there would be more of an interest in an international agreement. What's to stop President Trump from installing uh, the Signal uh, text messaging app on his Android phone? Um, if he's still using it, I don't know. Maybe. I, I'm guessing he probably is. Uh, and in uh, messaging people without uh, any you know, record or uh, ability to track um, that he had those communications. Well, I feel like the Secret Service would be very annoyed 
if he did that. So nothing, nothing is to stop the president from doing anything. One of the lessons of this book, I'm sorry to say, is that nothing can stop a president from doing something foolish, something illegal, something unethical. That's behind, so long as he does it secretly. So that, that is one of the powers of secrecy, is that it, it's impossible to stop a president um, who wants to, do, to use secrecy to do something that is against the rules. Um, I'm pretty sure President Trump and the Secret Service will reach some kind of accommodation. Well, unfortunately, we're all out of time. Uh, I would love to get into Nixon, but uh, unfortunately. Uh, Mary Graham is the co-director of the Transparency Policy Project here at the Ash Center. Uh, Her book is President's Secrets, The Use and Abuse of Hidden Power. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. Mary, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. HKS PolicyCast is a production of Harvard Kennedy School. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader. Natalie Montana is our guest wrangler. Sarah Abrams, our sage advisor. Becky Wickle, our digital attache. Send us your comments and questions to policycast at hks.harvard.edu or on Twitter at PolicyCast and subscribe on iTunes and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. See you next week.